Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. This episode is sponsored by Southwestern Coaching. Southwestern Coaching has helped over 12,000 people increase their incomes by over 25% on average. As a successful salesperson, you know the importance of increasing your sales. But sometimes you might just need a little extra push and accountability to meet your goals and grow your business. Southwestern Coaching will help you increase your income through one-on-one sales and leadership coaching tailored specifically to your needs. Together, we will elevate sales. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. And we have an awesome guest for the show today. Stephen M. R. Covey is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author and the eldest son of leadership educator Stephen R. Covey, who is the author of the world-famous all-time bestseller, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen has become the co-founder and leader of the Franklin Covey Global Speed of Trust Practice. Stephen is a highly sought after international speaker who has taught trust leadership in 55 countries to businesses, governments, military, education, healthcare, and other groups. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, I'm really honored and excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Oh, the honor is mine. And if I look funny, I actually had a root canal on Monday. So I can talk fine, but when I smile, I have a really weird smile where my left side of my face goes up and the right side doesn't go up. So uh, if I look a little weird, I, I had a root canal on Monday, which was awful. I don't know if you've ever had a root canal, but it's no joke. I, I have. Yeah. No, I had a motorcycle accident when I was 14. Oh, my God. I'd never been riding anyway. I was on the roads and, <laughs> and, uh, and I lost my front four teeth. So these are crowns I've had for, you know. 50 years, basically. Forever, yeah. But I've had root canals on all of them. So you had to do a root canal on each one of the individual. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. It is like the worst. I can't think of many things that is worse than that. Anyways, but my voice is actually fine. So that's all that matters. I'm just so interested. We were talking right before the show when I said, is it proper to call you Stephen M. R. Covey? And you were saying how many generations have had that name. Tell us a little bit about that. That is fascinating. Yeah, no, it it is. I'm proud of it. I'm actually the fourth generation Stephen Covey. My father, who everyone knew, was the third generation. His father was Stephen uh, Glenn Covey, and his father was Stephen Mac Covey. But we all have different middle names. And because we have different middle names, we don't carry the moniker, you know, junior or the third or fourth, but instead we go by the middle name. So I'm Stephen M.R. Covey and so forth. And I I must say this, Dustin, I didn't dare break the streak. And so when when my son was born, I named him Stephen Hutchings Covey. That's my wife's maiden name. And then he didn't dare break the streak. And so I've got a grandson now, Stephen Vest Covey. He's actually the sixth Stephen Covey. That is awesome. Yeah. That is so, you, well, you, you, that was going to be my next question. So you answered it already. None of us want to jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It seems to be working out pretty well. So that's a good Yeah. Question. Yeah. We're, well, we're all proud of it. Grateful for it. It, it gives you a sense of, uh, of stewardship. 
responsibility to to have a, a name that my really my father you know personified such contribution. But also, I will say my my grandfather and great grandfather, even though they weren't as well known, also uh, were were great principled leaders. What was their background? Well, my my great grandfather, the original Stephen Covey, Stephen Matt Covey, he was um, a business person that did all kinds of different things. He was a serial entrepreneur that did hotels, oil and gas, did apartments, and he he started off as a sheep herder. In fact, I tell his story in my original book, The Speed of Trust. He was a sheep herder in Wyoming in the 1800s. Oh, that was rough territory. It was, and what happened at the time was he got caught in a blizzard and he thought he was going to die. He hunkered down with the sheep to keep him warm. And he basically offered up a prayer that if somehow he were to survive the night and make it through this blizzard, that as a symbol of his gratitude, he would build a shelter in that location in case any other traveler in the future or sheepherd in the future were to get stranded. And so he made it through the night. And he was true to his word. It took him a little while before he had the means to do it. But years later, he went back into Wyoming and built a motel called Little America. Hmm. Little America Motel in Wyoming. And it's a town. And all the only thing in the town is the motel and the gas station. <laughs> and it's in the middle of nowhere. And this is still years later. I mean, he built this in the 1920s. But he was true to his promise. He kept the commitment. He survived the night. And he built the shelter. But that Little America Hotel... He then ran it and, and built some other ones and built one in Salt Lake City, founded by my great-grandfather. And then my grandfather, Stephen Glenn Covey, he ran it. Wow. That is back in the day when a man's word was a man's word and, and you could count on, if I say I'm going to come back and build a hotel, then I'm doing it. Absolutely. He made a commitment to himself and he kept it. And he was true to his word. He said he was going to do it and he survived and he did it. You know, it's a, it's a good example of integrity. Is the connection to that is having trust with yourself first, and then trust will transcend to other people? Yep. Self-trust is the foundation of all other trust. Yep. It's, it's got to start with self. Hmm. And then when it starts with self, it gives you a foundation to then extend that trust out into relationships and teams and cultures. But if people don't trust themselves, they have a hard time ever building trust. That is good stuff. Where do you live, by the way? I live uh, near the Sundance Ski Resort in the Rocky Mountains in Utah. Wow. Just 10 okay. minutes away from the slopes. Okay. Greatest snow on earth. That's our motto. <laughs> we, we got sued by the Ringling Brothers because they, you know, theirs is the greatest show on earth. They actually did sue. Over they that. actually did. Oh but, my gosh. But it was, it was, it was settled. <laughs> when, when you first started, let's begin with the end in mind. Uh, I like it. <laughs> Obviously, your father's really well known, world famous with the seven habits of highly effective people. But you went on to earn your MBA at Harvard. Uh, you joined the Covey Leadership Center as a client developer, became the national sales manager. So what, what did that look like? Were you doing workshops, seminars, keynotes? Were you pounding the phones? What was the model that you were managing with that? Yeah. Well, what we created was we started off initially where everyone both sold and delivered what they sold. We do, do the seminars, do the workshops. But then over time, as we started to grow and get bigger, we ended up dividing the roles. And we found that we could do it better when we divided it because it was very hard when you were delivering workshops 
to then spend your evenings on the phone trying to make sales with clients. And so we kind of divided the roles. And so when I became national sales manager, I was over all the, the salespeople, the client partners that were working with our client organizations to try to grow the business, build the business. And then later, I also was over the consultants as well. And that, that was great because I started, obviously, my father is the founder of the company. So it's a, has, had a family orientation, but I started by learning the business, doing sales myself. That was my next question. Did you run workshops and get out there in the trenches? Yes. Yes. I, I, I started in the trenches, working with clients, presenting on what we were doing. And, you know, I tended to focus more in those, uh, the first half of my career, really on the business side. Mm-hmm. I, you know, started in sales, but then ultimately managing the client services group, which is our training and consulting, and then became the CEO. And the whole idea was I was trying to turn these great ideas my dad had, seven habits of highly effective people, principles and leadership into a, a scalable business because we had a great mission. But early on, we were trying to do everything, Destin. We were trying to have our mission go everywhere. And we kind of had to learn to be disciplined and have a business model. And so we adopted the mantra, no margin, no mission. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And the whole point was we've got to figure out how to run this as a business in order to have a great mission, in order to reach more people. Because if we just ran it like a mission only where we did everything, we'd ultimately run out of cash, run out of margin and not be able to have a mission. And then when we, when we started to do that, then we actually could take our mission a lot further. And that happened. And we became really at the time, the, the largest leadership development company in the world. And so wow. I was kind of helping to lead that, manage that, run that. And that's kind of the first half of my career. I love that. Here on the Action Catalyst, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen. There's a lot of people that probably are currently a sales manager. Well, you'll have a whole mix. There'll be people that are in the uh, front lines, pounding the phones, like what you were yep. just saying that you did. There will also be a lot of sales managers that can relate to what you're saying. And then also leaders, CEOs, presidents. What was the transition like for you going from running one of the biggest organizations in training to having to kind of put on a different hat and, and go from being the national sales manager to the president? Was it president and CEO or did you become yes, president? At the same time. What was that transition like for you? Well, because I had kind of grown up in the business and knew it, knew I knew the clients, I knew client needs, I knew how to deliver it. Because I'd done all kind of all that, all I was really adding to it was some of the operations side and some of the product development side. But even the product development side was something I knew well because I knew our content so well. And so I felt like for me, it was a big, I will say, you know, there's no question, as you know, Dustin, when you go to that CEO role, that perspective of making the decisions called, that's always a big shift. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big shift. And at the same time, though, I felt ready for it because of the work that I'd been doing. And, uh, and so I'd focused heavily on trying to figure out how to create a sustainable business model. How do we grow this business? How do we scale this business? How do we, we be profitable at this business? And that's where we moved down new paths that today sound commonplace. But back in the day, certification and licensing, instead of us going out and delivering everything, we would license our client to do it themselves and mm. certify them without having to hire us to come in and do it. Mm-hmm. And all they would do is was buy some materials from us as part of the delivery, but they wouldn't hire us. And that was seen as why would you do that? You won't make that money that you would make. But we, we also realized though, we could go to 
10 times or maybe 20 times or maybe 100 times more clients when we did this without having to ramp up our, our staff and our salespeople and our, and our delivery people. And the clients could go deeper with our solutions. They could take it to more people in their company because it wouldn't cost them so much. And so it really was at the time kind of almost a, a break with the traditional thinking. But the result of it was that we, we built a great business model. We scaled the business. We turned it into increasingly recurring revenue streams, which helped our profitability. And then from that, we could do all kinds of other things. But the core model of, of uh, having good ideas codified in good training and leadership development, and then finding ways to deliver it, both with us delivering it, but also with our clients delivering it so that they could take it to their people and have this impact their entire culture. That was what we were trying to do. And I'm very confident that we succeeded. Man, that is a brilliant maneuver because it's so hard to scale without having the ability to duplicate quickly. And, and that's an interesting path. What about the struggles? So as you were doing that, that, there had to be lots of twists and turns along the way. If you had to single out one that was like, man, this was a, a, a pivot point. This was a, a moment that made a huge difference for us. What was the struggle that you think our listeners could relate to and, and something that you learned a lot from? I'll tell you what it was. We had some success at Covey Leadership Center and we're going, working all around the world with clients and organizations. And then we made the decision to merge our organization with a then competitor, an arts competitor called Franklin Quest hmm. that was in the time management business. And see, we had been in the leadership business, but we also now started to, to branch into time management. The Covey Leadership Center had what we called the Seven Habits Organizer, which was a similar tool to the Franklin Planner, an organizing tool to help people. Ours was organized around the seven habits, but we were competing and overlapping. And the decision was, why don't we merge under the idea that combined, we can do a whole lot more. We can reach a lot more people and there's great ideas from both camps and we can do this great. So in theory, the merger made all kinds of sense. We had good people on both sides, good values, good approaches, but we approached everything completely differently. Mm. Um, apart from values, values were similar, but our approaches, our methods, our processes were quite different. And when we merged, it was really challenging the first couple of years where suddenly we became internally focused. And what had happened is there was distrust between the two groups, not because we'd done bad things to each other, but rather because we'd been competitors for years and, and we saw the world through a different lens. Now we're combined and there just wasn't the level of trust that we wanted and it slowed everything down and things became politicized. We became internally focused instead of externally focused. You know, and the question was, well, who, you know, whose strategy is going to win? The Covey strategy or the Franklin strategy? And, you know, whose product development idea is going to win? The Franklin one or the Covey one? And, you know, who's going to get this promotion? The Franklin person or the Covey person? Everything was seen in kind of we, they camps. That wasn't helping. That was a crucible. When I realized we need to apply our own material to ourselves. Mm. We need to build trust in the, in this combined organization. Separately, each organization had trust within their cultures, but combined, we didn't. And we became intentional and deliberate about the need to create trust in this new combined entity. And that without it, we would sub-optimize our performance and our value to clients. And we were seeing that. We'd seen a couple of years of that, of sub-optimization. And it wasn't near as fun either. 
And then we said, let's build the trust. We focused on it intentionally, deliberately. And when we did that, it worked. We could collaborate better. We could innovate better. We could engage our people better. We added a lot more value to clients. Our business models improved. Every measure went the right direction. And it was from that experience, this crucible, that it came out of that. And I recognized this, that first, trust matters enormously. It's impacting everything that we're doing in economic ways, as well as in leadership ways. And second, trust is learnable. You can build it on purpose. We just did. Even though we were low to begin with combined, we built it intentionally through our credibility and through our behavior. And that is a big idea that trust is a learnable skill, a competency, because most people kind of think you either have it or you don't. And I'm saying that might be a starting point. And from that, I literally became inspired around the idea of saying, I think I found my voice around what I want to say, that trust changes everything and that trust is a learnable skill. And I'm going to write a book on this about uh, why trust matters. And that became the speed of trust book. Wow. And I kind of shifted my whole career from running business to now becoming a thought leader, similar to what my dad had done. I didn't want to do that before because I felt like I was good at running a business, but also it was a little bit daunting to follow in my father's footsteps the guy that wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, how are you going to top that book? You know, you're never going to. And it was a little daunting to me, but I gained courage once I found my voice and felt inspired around my message that the world needed this. Leaders needed this. Organizations needed trust. They needed to know why it mattered beyond just the Pollyannish reasons why, you know, the basic ones. And they needed to know how to build it. If you could go back in a time machine during the due diligence of your M&A process, what would you have taught yourself? Like if you could hire yourself now as a trainer and coach yourself as the CEO to say, hey, here's what you should do as your process. Because, you know, there's all kinds of people listening that might be going through a merger right now or considering a merger or some form of this. What would you say you would have done differently in that scenario that now is part of your book? Yeah. Great question, Dustin. I, it's this. It's vital in any merger to make the creation of trust and the building of trust an explicit objective, as real and as tangible as anything else that you're doing. I would have declared my intent to and said, in addition to coming together and bringing these synergies we're, we're trying to achieve of scale or scope or what have you, it, we want to be very deliberate and intentional about the kind of culture that we want to build together. And that is a high trust culture. And it won't just happen because we're good people. This is only going to happen if we become intentional about it, deliberate about it, and behave our way into it. And while both companies have good people, we see the world through different lenses. And so the only way that we're going to really build this is by listening first and being transparent with each other instead of having these side conversations and talking straight versus spinning things and clarifying expectations and practicing accountability and making sure we also extend trust to each other. We found that we were, that people tended to trust the, those that they were alike and came from the, the party, they, you know, the side they came from, they extended trust more abundantly. And the point would be that rather than just, you know, if you just kind of assume trust and take it for granted, it will tend to go down. In most change initiatives. Trust will go down unless you're intentional about it. So become intentional about trust and, and you can't just assume it or take it for granted. And that's a learning. And so we, we got there. We just spun our wheels for a while before we got there. 
But it, it is interesting, Dustin, because we have taken this insight and learning and we've helped a lot of companies that have merged. And sometimes we are on the front end before they've done it, telling them of the importance of being explicit, of being intentional, of declaring intent and then behaving your way into trust. But what's interesting is people almost have to earn that insight. Mm-hmm. We found we've done a lot more work with organizations that have already merged and have struggled and they're struggling with trust. And then they say, we need some help. Franklin Covey, can you help us? And they almost had to have some humbling and some pain before they really recognized how critical and valuable this was. And then they came to us, they come to us and say, we need some help. So I'd rather do it on the front end, but sometimes people have to be ready for it. <laughs> that is such a great story. And it's inspiring. You know, you really think of all the areas that that applies to. It could be your family, your friends, your business. It could hit every area where there's a breakdown. Stay tuned. Stephen will return in episode 380 of The Action Catalyst. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that The Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore action. Thanks for listening.